Welcome to the Railvolution Podcast. I'm Dan Bartholomew, CEO of Railvolution, a network and an annual conference focused on ways that communities leverage major transit investments, including buses, rail, bicycles, walking, sharing, and other emerging options, all to connect people with employers and neighborhoods. With the Railvolution Podcast, we're delving deeper into aspects of building livable communities with special focus on equity and community participation. Let's get started. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jeff Wood, principal of the Overhead Wire and your host. This month on the Revolution Podcast, we chat with Maurice Jones, president of the Local Initiative Support Corporation, or LISC. Maurice talks about how he got into community development, their involvement in a new Bay Area housing initiative, and the potential for community investments to make big changes for the better. Stay with us. Maurice Jones, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I'm a country boy from Southern Virginia, raised on a tobacco farm by grandparents, went off to college and law school, practiced law for a little while, did two tours of duty through Virginia state government and two tours of duty through the national government, uh, HUD and Treasury. Then I worked a little bit in a venture philanthropy arm, and uh, I've been here at LISC now going on three years. It'll be three years in September. So it's been uh, a lot of fun, and hopefully I I have a lot more fun to have. But at bottom, I'm a country boy from Virginia who was raised by his grandparents on a farm. And how did you get into community development? It seems like a long and winding road through a lot of different organizations and work experience, but how did you get into community development? Yeah, I'd say there were sort of two seminal experiences that ultimately led to community development for me. One, I spent six years at the U.S. Treasury Department, and while there, I learned of and went to work for the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund. That was really my introduction to the development finance field in the U.S., and I loved it. I loved it. It was really inspiring to work in a space that was essentially using market and business principles to help communities that were underserved, that were not um, receiving the kinds of capital investments that they needed. It was awesome to be able to learn about that space and to work in that space. And that experience at the CDFI fund really planted a seed that one day I wanted to do that work outside of government. The second experience was when I was the commerce and trade secretary for the state of Virginia. And my principal job there was to help the state grow jobs. And what I quickly discovered was that there were 20% of the places in Virginia that were actually investment ready. And then there was the other 80% that needed a lot more work at the community level to become investment ready. And the areas that we were focusing on were the ones that were already ready. So the rich were getting richer, if you will. And I wanted the chance to work on that other 80% and to try to 
help that other 80% make progress. This job at LISC was the perfect place from which to do that, both in urban and rural America. You're, you're right, it seems like a winding path, but in fact, what it is more likely is a seed that, uh, or I would describe it as, look, a seed was planted pretty early on that I have finally had an opportunity to help cultivate. So I'm really um, excited about it. We've been hearing a lot lately, and, and this wasn't a question I had in mind, but your comments brought it up about growing jobs at, at a state level. We've had this whole rigmarole about Amazon and moving and, and incentives and things like that. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about growing jobs in states and regions with all these incentive programs going on. Yeah, so I would say a couple of things on that. One, the biggest opportunity that every state has, if Virginia's example is symptomatic, is to help the businesses that are already there grow. And the question is what incentives and what partnerships can you deploy to help the existing businesses that are already in your state grow and add jobs for the folks of those states. The second thing that I would say is with respect to this question of incentives, for attracting employers to come. I, I understand the school of thought that says we should not be doing that. The bottom line, though, is everybody would have to disarm <laughs> in order for that to really make sense because this is a competition and the incentives are part of the competitive tools. They're not the only thing you have, but they're part of the competitive tools. Now, having said all that, look, uh, if you look at the decisions that Amazon made, the ultimate reason why Amazon chose the places that it chose was because of its perception of having talent that it needed to do the jobs that it needed to get done. And so the real message for folks is the real job to be done in every community out there is get the talent prepared for the jobs of the 21st century, particularly get talent prepared for digital jobs, for the digital age, which we're already in and which is evolving at warp speed. And that is the biggest investment, the most important investment that any community or any state can make. If you have a prepared workforce, the employers will come. If you have a workforce that is prepared particularly for technology jobs or jobs that require technological competence, which in this day and age are a lot of the jobs, then you can bet your last money you'll be able to compete for these employers that are looking to expand or move headquarters, et cetera. That for me is the biggest message of Amazon. I'll have a question for you later about this same topic, but first I, I kind of want to go into the background of LISC and, and what it is and what exactly LISC does in the communities that it serves. So LISC ultimately is a community development and development finance organization. And what we do in the places where we work, which are a lot of places, is provide access to capital to get projects done that will help catalyze opportunity for particularly people who are living in low and moderate income areas. So we provide capital to help preserve affordable housing for people who are at all walks of life or earning incomes that 
range from 30% of the area median income to 80% to 120%. And we provide capital to actually create or develop new housing for folks along those lines as well when it comes to incomes. We provide capital for small business development and for minority entrepreneurship and women entrepreneurship. And we provide technical assistance as well. We are a comprehensive community development organization at the end of the day. We have 35 offices around the country in metropolitan areas. And then we also work in 2,000 rural counties in 44 states. We've invested capital in every state in the union. And ultimately, what we're trying to do is catalyze opportunity for folks who are underserved, underemployed, or unemployed, if you will. Hopefully, that that makes sense to you. I should add, the the other piece is, last year, if you look look at what we invested, we invested $1.5 billion dollars in these communities across the country last year. So, you know, we're investing now over a billion dollars a year in low and moderate income areas primarily. And you talked about entrepreneurship and also about training in your previous comments. And this goes back to the question I was going to ask originally, but I wanted to get into kind of what LISC does. You also help people of color get into industries such as property development that have been predominantly white and kind of higher income in the past. Absolutely. How important is it to help the long-term transformative changes in this way instead of, you know, just doing the capital financing for development? Yeah, it's a great question. It's, It's critical. So, look, a big piece of our work is making sure that we are intentionally broadening the folks that you see, for example, who are developers. So we are purposefully trying to cultivate and launch or help cultivate and launch, for example, minority developers, which are scarce around the country. We are purposefully in in Chicago right now, we are managing a fund that is a fund for minority entrepreneurs. We're being intentional about that. So in in our eyes, it is really critical that race and culture be part of the intentions that we are pursuing with our assistance, technical assistance and capital. Because if you look at this country and the history of this country, we have had policies, both in the public sector and the private sector, and practices, both in the public sector and the private sector, that have discriminated against women and people of color, et cetera, and have resulted in some of these inequalities and inequities that we're seeing uh, around the country in various communities. And the only way you're going to truly try to cure that or address that is to be just as intentional in your uh, approach to investments. And so for us, you can't do this work without having race and culture as an umbrella under which you work. What have you thought about all of the education that's been going on around this subject of past histories? I mean, the Color of Law book by Rothstein, you've had yeah. a lot of those redlining maps going around on, on blogs yeah. and news and information. And, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on that further education. So I, my hope is, and I'm an optimist ultimately, my hope is, that this education is helping people to better understand that we didn't get this way as a country. We didn't get this way by some kind of hands-off free market journey, that we in fact 
got this way because people were intentionally shutting people out on the basis of race or gender or culture or what have you. And so my hope is that the work of the folks that you uh, mentioned are helping more people understand that, look, when you ride through the streets of Cincinnati or Milwaukee or Charlottesville, Virginia, and you see these neighborhoods that have been excluded from the mainstream and they are neighborhoods that are overwhelmingly African-American, these didn't get there by some kind of hands-off journey that occurred naturally. These communities were purposefully segregated. Highways were driven through them to purposefully isolate them. And that is a part of who we are as a country and something that we have to be honest about and something that we have to address. And so I think all of this education that's coming out about intentional redlining and what's happening with respect to evictions and how you can see where highways and other roads were actually intentionally placed in people's uh, communities and divided them. I'm hoping that this education is helping people understand that we've got a lot of work to do to cure, frankly, some sins that have been self-inflicted. And now more people are talking about it. I mean, more people are talking about equity and and inclusion. Yep, they are. And I think that's I think this work that you're talking about is in part having that kind of impact because you're right. I mean, the number of funders and policymakers and others within communities that are explicitly talking about equity and race and segregation is at its peak now. And I think it's an incredible opportunity for us as a country. Do you think it's still siloed, though? I mean, we talk about housing and transportation and other things in these silos. And then some, you know, a lot of times equity even gets siloed into its own box. And so do you think it's siloed? Do you think it still needs to be more integrated into the whole conversation? Yes. The answer is yes. It is still siloed, but I think it's becoming less siloed than it has been. You know, uh, poverty has been siloed, right? Mm -hmm. We have for the longest time put poverty and race and other things that deal with folks who are often wrestling on the margins. We have not sort of figured out how to integrate them into the mainstream. And so, yeah, I think it's still siloed. I think it's still marginalized. But boy, I'm telling you, it is, we're making a great journey right now and great progress to make it more part of the mainstream and get more and more people comfortable from all walks of life integrating that into these elements into their work and my hope is that we'll just continue to make progress on this we didn't get here overnight we won't solve it overnight if you will well, you all have been involved in a lot of great work in communities. I'm curious if you have a, a favorite transformation or story that really hits at what you all are trying to accomplish at LISC. You know, it's interesting. My favorite stories are always the individual ones. You know, it's that young man who approaches me, and this has definitely happened, who said to me, listen, I was incarcerated for seven years. I came out of uh, prison and I have a daughter and I couldn't get work. I found a training program that you all were supporting through your, your workforce efforts. And now I have a certification as a welder 
and I'm making good money. And most importantly, I'm able to raise my daughter and care for my daughter. For me, this guy's life, his life journey, that's the kind of thing we want to be a part of. By the way, this was an African-American male uh, in his late 20s who had gone to jail at 18 or 21 at max and had spent seven years in. And through a small part that we had to play in the workforce arena, he has transformed his life. And not only his life, but the life of his family. And in particular, his daughter has a father. For me, that's what makes this work worth getting up every day and hustling for. That's so great. Such a great story. It's hard to segue from that a little bit (laughs) into something else, but your organizations have been involved in in a big story, at least here in the Bay Area, which is that there's a a $500 million partnership for the Bay's future focused on housing, especially in the Bay Area, which I'm sitting here in San Francisco and folks that listen to this (laughs) know that the Bay Area is is a big housing issue. I'm curious how that got started and, and how you all got involved. Well, my hat's off to the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative in particular, because they really were the MVP or most valuable player in getting this effort underway. They decided that they wanted to do something about the housing challenges in the Bay Area, and they spent a fair number of, in fact, over a year, essentially going around the community in the Bay Area, asking how they could be helpful. They partnered with the San Francisco Foundation and ultimately decided that they were going to work on this housing finance system and try to develop a private sector initiative that could help to fill the gaps that were going unfilled in the housing finance system. And the way that we actually got involved was they wanted to, after they decided they were going to create a fund, in fact, it's two funds, one that's an investment fund, one that's a policy-oriented fund, and the two are sister funds that work hand-in-hand. They decided that they needed someone to manage the investment fund, and they put, essentially, it created a competition. They issued an RFP, and we uh, were so excited about that. We responded and competed for it and were lucky enough to be chosen to actually manage that fund. And it has been a fabulous journey thus far, working with them and the San Francisco Foundation and other parts of the Bay Area, the Genentex and the Silicon Valley Foundation and Kaiser Permanente. I mean, it's a fabulous effort that has a multi-sector coalition behind it that is attempting to catalyze investments that will preserve and protect and develop housing while at the same time catalyze policy changes that you need in order to sustain momentum that you could get in this area. It is uh, one of the most exciting efforts that we are a part of now. And so we feel privileged to be uh, a part of the journey, but we also think it's an incredible opportunity for the Bay Area and hopefully for potential replications elsewhere. You mentioned financing gaps. I'm wondering what some of those gaps are in the Bay Area. You know, it's, these are the sorts of things you, you have to have for much of this work capital that's patient, right, that has longer terms mm-hmm. than, say, three-year terms, right? You have to have capital that is at a cost that will allow you to build housing for people at 30% of area median income, for example. So you have to have interest rates that are low enough for that to make sense. 
And you have to be able to be creative around the kinds of collateral that you're going to ask for in order to back up these loans. And you have to work with multiple kinds of partners or borrowers to actually get this work done. So you've got to have products for for-profit developers, non-profit developers. You have to have products for churches that have land that so far has been undeveloped that can help them actually develop that land. And so, you know, it's a series of attributes, depending on the borrower or the job that you're trying to get done, that you need to create and customize products for. And that's what we're trying to do through this effort in the Bay Area. You also mentioned an RFP, which was really interesting. And the fact that you all had to do an RFP is, it seems like kind of rare, I would think. It is It is an interesting way of doing it, but it's what Chan, <laughs> you know, Chan Zuckerberg, again, to their credit, what they decided was, look, we want to work with a partner and we want to work with the best partner we can find for this initiative. So let's let people come forward and, and show us what they can do. <laughs> so they issued an RFP. <laughs> And yeah, like a dozen of us or so competed and they put us through a, a rigorous journey before, as I say, before selecting us to manage the funds. So, and it gave us a chance to get to know them through the process as well for us to assess fit with their values as well. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, again, a part of the innovation of this effort was this, this sort of RFP that they ended up issuing to find the manager for the fund. We've seen a lot of funds here and uh, around the country focused on transit-oriented development. Here we have the TOA Fund. Indianapolis just launched a fund to fund affordable housing near transit. I'm curious what makes these endeavors work? What makes these funds and the patient capital that's put together through organizations such as yours to make these things work out? Yeah, I would say there are a number of assets that you need. Need people who or a coalition of folks from multiple sectors who are willing to put up patient capital, right? So the fund in the Bay Area is designed to be an 18-year fund because it's going to take some time to get this work done. It's going to take some time to develop a pipeline of projects, which is the second piece that I would say you need to have community buy-in and community engagement from day one. That community buy-in and community engagement allows you to do a lot of things. It allows you to develop a pipeline of projects. It also allows you to get a feel for whether you're doing what the community wants. Are you addressing the issues that the community wants to address? And it gives you a chance to understand the kinds of things that you will have to do to be responsive uh, and partner with the community. And you need money, right? You need money to do these things. And the money you need is in various classes, right? So you need grant dollars. You need low-interest loans. You need PRIs from the philanthropic world. Different forms of money in order to be able to do different jobs, right? Because if you're going to be building or preserving housing, for example, for people who are on the edge of or at risk of homelessness, you will need a greater sort of subsidy for that housing in order to make it economically viable than you would need if you're building or preserving housing for people 
who have incomes at 120% of their area median income. So you need different forms of money to make the economics of these things work. And ultimately, you need a lot of luck, right? You need luck with finding projects and you need luck with getting through permitting processes and luck with, you know, getting these things underway. Those are some of the ingredients of success, I would say, for these kinds of projects. What would a system look like where we didn't need to have all of these great organizations working on problems if they weren't problems, if that makes sense? <laughs> what, would a, what would a system look like where everything was working out as it should? I kid people all the time about this. You know, it, it goes back to these lines in a poem that I can't remember whether it was Keats or Yeats. Anyway, he wrote these lines in a poem. The poem was Courses from the Rock. And he basically said, the lines are, you know, they kept dreaming of systems so perfect that no one would ever <laughs> need to be good. <laughs> right? Dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. We don't have a system like that. <laughs> Anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> anywhere. So I don't know what, I don't even dream of a system like that. We have an imperfect system that uh, <laughs> inherent in it is the risk of generating inequality. And what you need is a coalition of people who want to do good, who want to transform the system so that more people can share in that prosperity. And that's all over this country. It may be a larger problem in the Bay Area than it is in Peoria, Illinois, but it is a problem practically everywhere that we work. What do you think of these opportunity zones and the tax breaks that uh, were signed into law through the, the latest tax bill that was passed? I think it was last year. I am very, very excited about the prospects of the opportunity zones attracting essentially a new investor class to invest in these hard-hit communities. I, though, know that what you're going to have to do to actually ensure that these investments produce both financial returns and community benefits is to make sure that that's explicitly what you're trying to do when you're set up and managing these funds. And right now, the rules don't require both, even though the intention of the um, legislation is both community benefits and return to investors, there's nothing that actually requires it in the rules so far. And so I believe that the key to success here is, again, enough people who really want to do good in these communities getting involved in as investors and organizing funds to work in these opportunity zones. Uh, but in terms of a chance to really effect some incredible change, this is arguably the biggest incentive for community development that the country has had. I mean, there are $6 trillion plus dollars of capital gains that are generated every year. And if we can tap into that in any significant way, it's a game changer for these communities. Do you think the, the process was fair for choosing the zip codes or the parcels that are going to be eligible for the opportunity zones? So I would say that I think that the outcomes 
are actually pretty decent. I mean, the actual census tracts that were chosen at the end of the day, I think the governors did a good job. If you look at the economic attributes of these census tracts, you're talking about places where on average, the unemployment is over 14%. On average, you've got poverty rate that's greater than 20 or 25%. You've got about 25% of these tracks that are in rural America. So I think whether it was luck or something else, the areas that we really want to focus on have been included uh, for the most part. It's not flawless, but for the most part, have been included in these opportunity zones. Now, keep in mind, you are choosing here only 25% of the tracks that meet the eligible criteria from an economic distress standpoint. So you still have, and, and that's like 9,000 census tracks. That means 75% more are not designated as opportunity zone census tracks, but they qualify. They're eligible. And so no one should think that we have all of the distressed census mm -hmm. tracts within the Opportunity Zone designations because that's not the case. But on balance, yeah, I think that the zones that have been chosen make sense as the places that we want to try to aggressively go out and attract capital to. You mentioned tracks. I think I mentioned zip codes, but you're you're right. It's tracks <laughs> that are the, yeah, the, oh, sorry. the geographic <laughs> side. No, no. That. I mean, you were right. I was wrong. I think it's because I was probably melting into the next question as well, which is that, you know, your zip code determines your health outcomes throughout life. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to see how, you know, divisions of, of geography can imperil you or make your life better over time. And I'm curious, you know, what the idea of health, we've had a number of folks on recently talking about health and, and how that's important from a transportation aspect as well as a community aspect. But I'm curious from your perspective how important health is to the community development discussion, especially since you all work in so many places in rural and urban areas. Absolutely necessary. So just to give you a sense of our judgment on this, we committed publicly two years ago that we were going to spend or invest $10 billion in the next 10 years in low and moderate income areas with the intention of improving health metrics. And what we said our ultimate spot on the wall is to decrease the life expectancy gaps between the low and moderate income census tracts and those that are not. In some cities, by the way, that's 10, 20, 30 plus years difference in your life expectancy. And you may have grown up five miles away from another census tract where the life expectancy is 20 years greater. There is no question in my mind that health, community health and individual health and community development are two sides of the same coin. They are intimately related and must be addressed together in order to make true progress in our community. So for us, social determinants of health work, for example, is community development work. And, and the, the, you know, the, the medical professionals will all tell you that the greatest determinants of a person's health are not the clinical experiences, meaning the experiences folks have within the doctor's office. It's actually, do they have a job that pays a livable wage? Do they have housing that is quality and affordable, how much stress are they under from day to day because of underemployment or what have you? 
safety issues. It's community development. It's how good we are as a country in developing communities and catalyzing opportunities for people. Those are the biggest determinants of the health status of our people. And so, yeah, community development is the best medicine around. Yeah, we had some folks on here from Geisinger Health in Pennsylvania talking about the 80-20 number, which is, you know, 80% of your health outcome is from things outside of the hospital, outside of the healthcare system. So it's totally relevant. Yeah, we we definitely consider ourselves to be in the health space. We're in the health, we're in the healthcare business, no question about it. (laughs) (laughs) And my final question today is, you know, I read a piece in the Washington Post yesterday about how you know, transit-oriented areas are becoming more exclusive and a little bit less affordable in, in D.C. And I personally believe that, in part, that's because we aren't building enough transit or providing enough service. I'm curious what role transit capital or even service expansion play in your work in, in the housing arena and the building Huge. communities area. Huge. So we try to be very, and you'll see this, by the way, in the Bay Area work, we're trying to bring the housing and bring the commercial facilities for jobs and bring the workforce training facilities to the transit lines, right? To the places along public transit lines that people can access. So yes, you're right. The the one issue is not enough transit opportunities, rail, bike, walking, bus, But another issue is making sure that development along the transit lines that are there is development that is multi-use, that is multi-purpose, and that is accessible to folks from all walks of life. And so we spend a fair amount of our time trying to help develop right along transit lines, whether it's you know, subway or rail or bus, the kinds of facilities that people need to access in order to get jobs done in their daily lives, whether it's housing or medical facilities or workforce development facilities or places to shop. So you've got to do both. You've got to build more transportation, no question about it, in more communities. But you also got to make sure that you are developing more assets along the transit opportunities that already exist. You got to do both. Awesome. Well, Maurice, thank you so much for joining us and thank you so much for your work. Well, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed talking to you. And yeah, stay well. Thanks for listening to the Rail Evolution Podcast. For more about building livable communities, visit our website, railvolution.org, and follow us on Twitter at Railvolution. <laughs>